Welcome to Deal Talk, a private equity podcast by Moonfair. Each episode, our CEO, Dr. Stefan Pauls, sits down with leaders from across the industry to discuss their views on the investment landscape, working with portfolio companies, and the lessons they've learned. So with that, I want to turn it over now to Moonfair's founder and CEO, Dr. Stefan Pauls, who will introduce our guest. Thank you, Pablo. So I'm delighted to be here and a very warm welcome from, from my end for our um, deal talk today here. Uh, I'm very much delighted to have you all here. And I must say I'm overwhelmed about the interest for the format that we are seeing. I'm counting 230 professionals and the number is still increasing attending the webinar today. And I'm convinced this is due to the fact that we have an outstanding executive from the private and equity industry with us today. And I'm talking here about Markus Brennecke, who is our guest today. Markus is a private equity veteran, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating by saying that he has been clearly shaped the private equity industry in Europe over the past 15 years. Markus is partner and co-head of Equity's global private equity advisory team. And moreover, he is a member of the Equity Partners Investment Committee. He's chairman of the Portfolio Review Committee, within equity, and he's also head of the industrial network. The deals Marcus has been leading are numerous, and they include landmark deals such as Tocknum Group, ESN Medical, Kabel Baden-Württemberg, and many more, just to name a few. But there's more. As an entrepreneur, Marcus has been part of the amazing success story that Equity as a firm has written. When he joined Equity in 2005, the company was, yeah, I would say, a boutique private equity firm, a couple of offices across Europe, and a single-digit billion number in assets under management. Today, we are talking about a firm that manages more than 50 billion in assets under management with 700 employees in 17 offices globally. I personally find this story amazing. So, Markus, a very, very warm welcome from our side. So delighted to have you with us here today. Thank you. Very nice words. Before we get started, just a, you know, a few process things to mention. Uh, we're going to have now 20, 25 minutes for questions between, uh, from, uh, from my end uh, and the discussion between myself and, and Markus. And at the end of the session today, the audience, you will have the opportunity to ask questions. So please type them in as we speak. The team uh, around Pablo and Zeke uh, we then pick you know, the most relevant ones, those that have been mentioned most often. Every question that will be remain unanswered because of time constraints, Marcus uh, kindly offered to, to answer um, after the session. So let's jump into the discussion. And the first topic, Marcus, I want to discuss with you is around macro and around inflation. And you know, more and more in the past, over the past couple of weeks, the, the concerns around inflation have been rising. And I'm simplifying a bit here, but you know, four factors that, that stand out from, from in the discussion more and more. One is the unprecedented amount of fiscal stimulus that we are seeing. And we are talking here about you know, announced measures that count for more than 20% of global GDP. Just for the US alone, we're talking about a number of 5.9 trillion that has been announced since the pandemic began. Then, of course, we have the you know, monetary easing. Uh, many people say the low to zero or negative interest environment is here to stay. And it seems that there is no real 
you know, hurdle anymore um, from, from the central banks. The 2% inflation cap, you know, is, is not set in stone anymore. So we, we, we very likely will continue to see monetary easing. But there are also deflationary uh, factors that, that come to play. One of them, of course, globalization, you know, the, the, uh, the value chains, um, production is going to the lowest cost areas globally. And of course, we are seeing digitalization, which its impact on productivity gains in more or less every and each industry. So, so let me ask you, what is EQT's view on, on macro, on inflation, and what do you think we can expect this year and going forward? Yeah, I need to disappoint a little bit with your first question because I'm not a macro expert, but um, still, my strong belief is this cannot last, this uh, current environment. Of course, uh, as you pointed out, the liquidity um, um, uh, is there to look for yield. <clears throat> and, and, uh, but I do think that the current um, um, environment is unhealthy. And honestly speaking, the valuations, including the spec boom, for me, is not sustainable. And it feels a little bit like the IPO windows are starting to get shaky in the US, particular for high growth um, uh, revenue multiple based tech companies. Yeah, they were down five to four to five percent on average yesterday at NASDAQ. And um, notably, some of the high profile IPOs take Oscar Health are not working. They are down, I think, 30 percent since um, pricing in early March. Therefore, the institutional long-only accounts like the Fidelities and Blackrocks essentially went on a buyer strike yesterday and decided to take a breather. And the hedge funds, which you need to drive momentum in order books, also weren't buying anything. So I'm not saying it will go down. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know, but I am sure it will be very bumpy uh, from now on um, for the remainder of the year. And then, of course, we always have these geopolitical risks um, which we see all the time being Brexit, being, um, you know, being US-China trade um, and so forth. So um, I must say, I think one needs to be, um, one needs to be careful. I, I personally think it's getting, you know, very thin ice. You were talking about uh, public markets. When we move to the private world of things, we all have seen an unprecedented value creation happening. In, in private markets so far. And just a few stats here to illustrate what's happening. Since 2000, buyout asset value has grown 3.5 times faster than public markets capitalization. Companies are staying, you said it, private for much longer. Maybe this is also you know, a, a, a reflection of the exaggeration than in public markets. Uh, we see you know, that the opportunity set in, in private markets is approximately, and now I'm talking US data, 10 times larger than in public companies. And we are seeing a 50% decline in publicly listed companies in the US again since 1996. So do you think this trend of these unprecedented value creation in private markets is going to, to continue as a general trend? And that as an investor, you have to play market, private markets. Yes, Stefan, I'm convinced that you, um, that you need to play the private markets um, as the public markets can be, like always, um, uh, can be volatile. Um, in a private setting, we as an investor uh, have much more freedom to act as I sell parts, you know, buy, do lots of add-on acquisitions, work on operational excellence, um, and, and um, without looking at sort of market, you know, market reactions. Of course, the public markets will always be important and we need to play them either with 
public to private when valuations are attractive and lower, uh, or exits when valuations are high. And that is what we do with our buyout funds, obviously. Um, but we also have, a, by the way, a constructivist fund, how we call um, it, it uh, where we take stakes in public companies and drive value creation from that perspective. So we have been pushing, obviously, exits um, in this current market environment and being a careful investor, obviously, in, in buying, um, uh, buying assets. But um, yes, my strong belief is uh, one should play um, the, private, um, uh, the private markets. Marcus, let me ask you a, a difficult one. And we all know that you should not time your investments and rather invest across cycles. Uh, and also there's empirical evidence, by the way, that private equity best returns tend to follow recessionary periods. But given where we are, and, and you said it, um, the valuation levels that we are seeing, the high volatility in the market, and referring also to the record amount of dry powder money that is out there, but also the money that is put to work as we speak. Do you think, does the firm, does XGT think that the time is now really right to, to place such huge bets? <laughs> um, I don't think we are placing bets, to be honest. Um, we are a thoughtful investor, like uh, some of our dear colleagues. Um, but let me give you an example. We have decided a few years ago to focus in our buyout fund on four core sectors, being healthcare, being technology, being services and industrial tech. Um, and uh, and by, by the way, we, we deprioritize consumer goods. Not that I'm saying consumer goods is uh, per se not good, but we decided not to play, um, um, you know, invest into consumer good anymore because you have the Amazons and uh, you know, other ones who are, who are um, of course, very strong. In our last three buyout funds, healthcare and tech was roughly 65 to 75% um, of the portfolio. Just before COVID, um, uh, hit us, the entire portfolio was growing 20% top line and roughly 20% bottom line. Um, so in a low GDP environment, we had very nicely growing companies. And on the other side, when COVID hit us, we had a very resilient portfolio in these two sectors, you know, in mainly these two sectors, obviously. Um, so it was also downside protected. Um, so we have been always strong in crisis at EPT, also in the financial crisis. And, 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 and our guidance to our team was exit as much as you can in this environment, as I said before. And of course, we've also invested in growth themes um, uh, along our four sectors and had to pay high prices. Yes, but we rather pay a high price for a good company in a growing market than a lower price for a not so good company in a more challenged market and try to develop this, this, good, this good company too great or a great company to an awesome one. And we invest with the trend and are not bottom fishers or buy into cyclical companies. And therefore, our investors, including Moonfair and their customers that I think trust and gave us in our COVID fundraising, which only started in Q1 last year um, and, and gave us 15 billion euro of fresh money for EQT9, which we very carefully um, invest. Thank you, Marcus. I'm, I must laugh a little because last time when you and I spoke in private about the spark phenomenon, I said, look, I'm, I'm, we're not bring up the topic, but my, my team forced me to do so today. So talking about sparks, and you mentioned it, which became a mass phenomenon. Uh, and just again, uh, mentioning a stat here, they are standing for more than 50% of all US IPOs last year. You know, and uh, there's no day without a news about the new spark. So some are seeing this as a huge bubble, uh, but other industry watchers are saying and counting sparks as real dry power. 
powder for, for the buyout industry. And some are even saying, wow, this could become a threat to the established private equity industry. And, and some are even going further saying this will threaten the, the famous 220 model. So are you worried about the SPAC trend? Are you seeing them as competitors? Or do you think this is you know, a short-term phenomenon that will disappear fairly soon? So um, first of all, um, and sorry for being so frank, but I'm not a SPAC fan. And why? I don't like the fee model. And that's also the reason why I don't like hedge funds, where they can make billions in one year and, and the following year might have a disastrous performance. Um, I think incentives need to be aligned with the investors. And I believe in recent specs, like the one I think from Lakestar in Europe, this has been addressed. So that's, uh, I think, a good and, 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 and um, uh, you know, good development. We at EQT have decided not to be a spec sponsor because we believe this is rather for, let's say, financial engineers, not company builders. Would we exit to a spec? Um, it depends who the spec sponsor is because we have a responsibility for our companies and employees also beyond our ownership. And therefore, we also care to whom we sell companies. So this is not a romantic comment. It's really a realistic, um, a realistic one and a factual one. And finally, I believe that the SPAC boom will uh, not last. Bankers have told us that the SPAC market is trying to um, or is starting to crack because this de-SPACing events are getting, aren't getting the stock price pop-ups pop and they, they are used to. So this will negatively um, impact the demand for new SPACs. And that risk of attitude will start impacting also the general IPO market. So... Look, competition has always been there. You know, we are we are never short of competition, and they're always, you know, then the pension funds go direct and and so forth. There, this spec boom comes. No, I'm not. Um, you know, I'm not uh, afraid in losing against a um, against a spec. And as I said, I'm a little bit um, I'm a little bit uh, critical, to be honest. Let's turn back to the established industry and. You, of course, know this top-tier private equity funds in the buyout segment have generated uh, returns north of 20% in terms of IRR in the past, net talking, an incredible performance. And EQT clearly uh, belongs into this bucket and, and stands out here. And there's also the famous relatively constant gap between private market performance and public market, which is around 8% called the illiquidity premium. But in your view on, and based on your experience and in these days, what is really driving and will continue to drive going forward the outperformance that we are seeing from the best buyout funds? Look, my personal view, Stefan, is that the top tier buyout funds um, always try to you know, work hard to improve. And to give you some examples, A, driving operational performance in a very active way i.e. we with our 500 plus industrialists, um, by the way, the broadest and deepest uh, bench of industrial uh, industrialists, XC-level people of the whole PE industry worldwide. The house of value creation, which we have with 33 levers, but which we have now developed further to standard levers like um, um, purchasing SGNA, HR, but then sector-specific value creation levers in technology, in healthcare, in each of our in each of, so in each of our four core sectors. Um, secondly, um, you know, playing very well the M&A agenda with divesting and and doing add-ons. Um, uh, look at our company IVC, which was started started as a local Swedish 
PETS clinic and is now Europe's largest clinic with I don't know, 1,300 um, uh, PETS, uh, PET clinics. And thirdly, can being able to do P2Ps when valuations are attractive, as I said beforehand, and, uh, and IPO and exit valuations are high. Uh, and doing that, you know, very, you know, very rigid and improved processes, etc. So um, that's 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 my summary. No, look, Marcus, this is resonating very well, also with our perception and view on the industry. And you know, what you say is 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 basically backing what what Henry Kravis said very early in the two thousand when he said the famous quote on financial engineering is over. And this is really important to understand that today, as you said, 72%, 72% of the entire value creation in global buyout performance comes from EBDA and sales growth, exactly because of the global playbooks and, and globalization capabilities the firms bring to bear. At EQT, you have, in addition to this, a very special and, and unusual, in my view, governance model called the Troika. Or Troika. Can you explain uh, the audience a bit what, what's behind there? Yeah, I need to go back a little bit to explain um, how the Troika is embedded. So first of all, I think it's a lot about um, not so much about the what, but rather the how you, 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 know, you drive performance. And as I said, we today have more than 500 industrialists um, 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 and, 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 and uh, um, you know, more than any other private equity company. And we started this industrial approach already in 1994 when Wallenberg family founded us with ex-executives from ABB, Atlas Copco, AstraZeneca, Ericsson, etc. And we've de continuously developed that. So these industrials help us um, uh, in due diligence um, um, next to the Baines, BCGs and McKinsey's and others. Um, and in every pre-deal work, approximately three to 10 industrial advisors are, um, are involved and they also write, they go to the management presentation and they write a memo directly to the investment committee. Um, and when, once we own a business, the advisory board consists always of four to five industrialists with specific and relevant competency and knowledge and complementary expertise. The chairperson always being, you know, coming from the industry, never myself or another EQT colleague and partner, which means we empower these industrialists and consequently the board meetings are very content heavy versus financially orientated. Um, and next to these approximately six board meetings per annum, we have um, a monthly physical, sometimes if needed, bi-weekly or weekly troika. Um, so now coming to your point, which consists of the CEO of the portfolio company, the chairperson and the EQT partner. And this troika is informal, is doing sort of follow-ons. Um, the CEO can discuss HR topics and in a very open way without his colleagues listening and even can say, look, Marcus, you are much too you know, intense now. Please, you know, can you can we you know, reduce the frequency or Mr. Chairperson, please do not be a super CEO. I'm running the show. But it's, it's really a very open, um, you know, open discussion forum and very um, informal. And therefore, there are no political games also. So in an underperforming company, the CEO cannot, cannot play and hide and, you know, speak then to the chairperson and then, you know, a little bit with other information to the EQT partner, because it will always be together. Um, and that is um, therefore, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it's really about this not being only financially driven and with financial with kids, but really having, um, you know, industrials really involved and having this 
um, yeah, Troika, which is uh, there's just one truth and it's an open dialogue and it's informal um, and it's uh, it's also a good tool for the CEO basically. Um, and uh, you know, my view is if companies underperform and the um, uh, and that goes back to in in the industrial approach. If companies underperform, then normally the financial, um, you know, financial uh, business professionals at a PE company, they then start to get nervous and they want to have another analysis and another analysis. But that doesn't make the company better. You need to have people who know an industry and have really experience to give the right expertise and be the right sparring partner for a management team. Extremely helpful, Markus, and, and thank you so much for the, for the insights here. Look, moving to another topic, and, um, you know, ESG and impact investing, you know, this have become, you know, a standard in the industry. Uh, but you are known as a fund manager that really actively uses impact as a filter for certain deals. Uh, when you think about the broader discussion and the conversations ongoing in the industry, what, what in your view, is, is missing in the mainstream discussions on the topic in these days? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. And um, Stefan, uh, I, I, what, what, what does not work in my book is that you, um, that a PE fund has one impact fund and believes, look, this is, you know, I, I please my customers. <clears throat> I, you know, I put a nice ribbon and you know, nice packaging around my whole PE approach. I think that's not enough. I think we have an obligation to really take this serious. Um, and, and, and that means, at least for us, as you said, um, we, are, we are really purpose-driven. We want to future-proof every company. And we take it so serious that we, we went just now through a purpose journey with all the partners um, uh, discussing the topic. And I, I, spoke, um, I spoke in front of um, our, in November, in front of all our chairpersons and CEOs and said, you know what, I don't want to do, once I retire, to do something good, whilst I can do it now, where I have probably more influence and more impact with our portfolio companies. So, so it's, it's, you know, it really needs to be ingrained in yourself to really drive something. And, we, and, and therefore, we said um, we need to take it so serious that we not, not only drive it for our portfolio companies, but that we want to be a leader in our industry and even, um, and, and even more. And to give you one example, we are pushing our suppliers to take the McKinsey, Bain, um, BCGs, the auditing firms, the law firms. We are asking them to have at least 25% of female on their teams. Otherwise, they will not get a mandate. So we are pushing even our advisors on, the, for instance, the diversity topic. So it's something really that it can't be only sort of, you know, the packaging. And yes, I do impact fund because I can raise a billion you, you really need to live and work it every day. And, you know, even in small stuff in your office, you know, have a, you know, green, uh, you know, green energy, like we have in all our offices or that we don't have any more this small Nespresso, but, uh, you know, beans and, and, and all the waste and so on. So, it, it, you know, it needs to be a, a, a work and, and, and obvious, you know, decisions um, and lead by example every day. And also when it comes to the portfolio company, my portfolio, performance portfolio performance review after the exact summary i always um, it, you know attack the esg topic before current trading or any other thing on the agenda so that people also see that we take it you know from the top that we really take it serious 
and that we wouldn't do deals also, um, like we wouldn't invest into betting or whatever. I'm not saying that you can't make good returns, but we want, you know, we are there very, very clear with this very clear filter. And I hope that our, um, you know, that our industry um, uh, will also move uh, further very, very fast. Markus, uh, let me say, I find it impressive, the, the passion and conviction behind this topic that, that you bring across. Um, let's move, you know, uh, so that we have time for the Q&A in, in a few minutes to a, a couple of more personal questions. Uh, and one is around advice, so to say, for, for younger people. If you would go or could go back in time, uh, what advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> different. First of all, I don't think you can be a good investor if you don't do mistakes. Um, uh, and I, I was a little bit lucky that I did uh, mistakes when, you know, in the early days of investing. So they were, they were not so costly and not so large, uh, but it's important. We need to allow people to make mistakes. Um, I would say be curious, stay humble. Very important point also towards the portfolio companies. Be a team player and not ego driven. And then one, you know, I have one lifetime learning point, and that is listen to different people and opinions and connect the dots. And I think probably I, I guess that's one of my strengths um, that I that I listen carefully to people and then try to connect the dots and form then my own view and get, you know, get different perspectives. And um, I remember having a lunch um, um, before COVID with a business partner. And I, I didn't like this personality, to be honest, yeah? Um, but I, you know, I still did it. But the but is, when listening to this person, there was one piece he mentioned, which I found very smart. And that was then my takeaway. So even if I didn't like the personality, you know, I took something with me. And that's something where, you know, that I would encourage people to, to listen to different perspectives. And therefore also, I think the diversity point is a very important one just because you get different perspectives and therefore come to better conclusions and, and decisions. And I think that was uh, um, that is what I would give as an advice. Marcus, you had many successes as a private equity executive. We talked about it, but there's also a, another area where mm. you had last year, I, I think I remember a terrific success, which is in sailing. So what, what uh, can you tell us, how, how did you get into sailing and what is your most, you know, win you're most proud of? Um, yeah, first of all, my father was um, a sailor and I used to sail as a young kid with my father and my mother and my sister in the, um, you know, in the Danish Apelago. So I basically know every harbor in, in, in Denmark and, and partly Sweden. Um, then I, when I when I turned 15, I wanted to have a sort of, you know, a moped, you know, a motorbike. Um, then my father said no, and he gave me a, a sailing boat. So I then started to race. <clears throat> and then I raced in the, you know, German team, Admiral's Cup and Sardinia's Cup, um, you know, during university time, etc. Then I stopped when I started working and, and, and I didn't sail for many, many years. And uh, when I when I uh, got unfortunately divorced, um, uh, I started to sort of you know think about again my old passion, and I started uh, uh, sailing again. And then I sailed in a smaller boat, Dragon, and I was lucky with a good team, uh, won three German championships and advised uh, some medals in European and World Championships. And then I um, last year, as you said, um, started on a on a larger boat, um, formed a team first of all, formed a team, then decided to buy a boat. 
then trained a little bit more, so worked a little bit harder probably than my competition. Um, uh, and then luckily uh, winning the main events, including the world championship in October. And um, the important thing about that, it's a, it's a team sport. It, I mean, it's a passion. It's a good also balance in life that you have a, you know, whatever passion, but that you have a passion. And the sailing gives me, you know, you know, fresh air and this team approach because everyone on the boat of the 12 people of the crew and also, um, you know, on shore, is important you know they, everyone is almost as equal as important you know so it's a really team team effort and and that's what i really enjoy and lastly i think uh, success uh, can be planned <laughs> so insightful marcus before i hand over to pablo for the q a here's my last one if you had to summarize your time at eqt in one word what would it be Amazing. Um, and um, why am I saying that? I've been very grateful to, um, you know, over the years work in such a great culture and with really 15 years with um, great colleagues. I was only probably, if I look back, perhaps annoyed. You always, you know, sometimes you're annoyed. Um, so I was probably annoyed only five to seven times in, in, in 15 years or more than 15 years. Um, and I think that is uh, that is possible, um, you know, positive. I think it was a splendid journey. I had some setbacks. Um, my biggest setback was that I um, lost Scout 24 um, um, against um, uh, competitor Helman and Friedman. I worked uh, extremely hard on that one. On the other hand, uh, it gave me again a really... Um, you know, a really hard drive to win the next corporate cardboard, uh, you know, hearing aids from uh, from Siemens. So probably I, I might have not won that one if I have not lost uh, Scout 24. So super culture, very rewarding journey, super culture, um, great, great team members, and especially the younger colleagues. I'm very, very proud when I see that the younger colleagues who are now since associate and they develop to really great investment professionals and, and, and successful um, uh, deal makers. That makes me very proud. So um, amazing. Perfect. Marcus, thanks so much so far. Handing over to Pablo because I'm seeing that the questions really are pumping up one after the other in our chat. Yeah. Uh, yes, so we, have. we don't have time to cover everything, but at least, you know, that we give the audience a chance. Absolutely. Um, let's get into it. So our first question uh, for Marcus, how should investors think about allocating to your funds via Moonfair versus buying into EQT stock? <laughs> Look, um, you know, buying into the stock is obviously, uh, how shall I say, it's, um, um, you know, you get basically a platform meaning everything in private capital from venture to growth uh, to buy out to a public value fund, this constructive fund to real assets. Um, whilst via Moonfair, you can, so to speak, choose to be in buyout or Asia or you know, individual funds. So the one is, let's say, more tailor-made according to your, to your appetite, and the other one is rather the sort of overall EQT, AB with, with everything. And, and it has obviously um, stock market exposure, at least in what you said, that can be volatile. Good. Um, next one, what, what will the PE industry look like in 10 years, considering the large amounts of capital as well as competition driving down returns? 
Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Um, I personally, I mean, people will, you know, there will be, of course, write-offs um, that goes without saying um, over time. Um, and and I think you need to be, you need to be always sophisticated and sophisticated and really work on additional, you know, improvements. Uh, you know, we have this saying, everything that comes from our founder, everything can always be improved everywhere at all times. So always think about incremental um, um, improvements. So we have our returns in the buyout space is still is still you know above twenty percent how we price it, but obviously there are core funds and and they have lower return requirements and um, and and longer hold funds. So we will see more of that, um, I believe. And 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 um, what what Stefan alluded to beforehand is private markets. We in the old days we decided to sell earlier some of our companies, and and I personally think that we see that also the phenomenon. That, that people hold on longer funds to their very attractive assets and put them into continuation vehicle or so. So we will see more of that to, to ride the winner, so to speak. Um, and um, yeah, that is, I think, um, as I said, the spec, uh, the spec phenomenon will, will be reduced again um, and there will be some other fashion elements coming up. So, but I do think that the, that the um, you know strong and large funds will be strong also in in ten years. So I don't think you will see different than in the tech industry, where some you know very cynical people will say Oracle and SAP they will be overtaken by the newcomers. Some newcomers we don't even know, and you've seen the Tesla. I'm 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 not so sure that that will happen in our industry, to be honest. I don't hear you. Oh, sorry, here's one from Marcus and, and one that Stefan may want to weigh in on as well. Um, benchmarking PE performance um, against the S&P is kind of difficult, as we know. Um, there's different asset classes, different return profiles. Is it really true that PE delivered better returns than the S&P? And if so, is it only counting top quartile funds? No, I think what we... I mean, we benchmark ourselves always against, um, you know, against the public markets, um, uh, A, because they are proxy always when buying companies, because the seller can always decide to sell, um, you know, publicly, publicly. but um, uh, we have, uh, um, so far, I, I remember, I don't have the stats at hand, uh, we have, we have uh, you know, outperformed. And, and you know our returns are roughly um, high teens net net per annum. I don't know, but I'm sure that Stefan has a even better overview than I have. Well, this is clearly our performance. And to the point is, uh, it's true in in private equity and in particular in buyout, there's nothing more important than the selection of the right managers. So with EQT, you have of course one of the leading managers in the industry, and this is why you see that type of outperformance if you take the broader average and you're not able to pick the right funds, then of course you're, you're approaching more the market average that you're also seeing in the, in the public markets. You know, but this is really what, what we at, at Moonfor are proud of uh, with our investment team and investment experience that we are convinced that we are picking exactly the top quartile funds which stand for the outperformance not only in the past, 
uh, but we are also confident that, that they will be able to deliver this in, in the future. Okay, great. Um, next question uh, for Marcus. We, we talked a little bit about the money supply and stimulus at the beginning of the chat. Could you elaborate how, how this is potentially inflationary environment may impact returns from private equity buyouts? As I said, I'm not really an expert in any kind of macro questions. So, I mean, look, you, you, see, you see inflated prices. Yeah, I mean, that's clear. If you look at these revenue multiples, multiples we have seen recently, I, it's just insane. It's, it's, I mean, just unbelievable. I have not seen that in my whole career. And as Stefan mentioned, you know, I'm a veteran. That's, by the way, the only good thing uh, with getting older is the experience point. Um, and um, yeah, I think we are seeing, we are seeing inflate, you know, kind of inflated um, assets, to be honest. And that's, of course, a function of, uh, you know, the liquidity, which is uh, pumped into our system. And, and therefore, I don't think this is sustainable. And therefore, I do think there will be, uh, we will see, you know, so, you know whether it's uh, um, a tax, uh, tax increases, we will see, um, uh, yeah, some, some, you know, higher inflation, um, uh, that, that will happen, but I'm sure that Stefan, he's a very, very bright person, much brighter than I am. He can even add to that. Okay, um, maybe this one would be the no, last no, one. We have to back to you. Yeah, maybe one last question, um, and and then we can we can close for today. Um, are there any sectors at EQT that you're particularly excited about, um, or that you're targeting? And is there any reason in particular that you haven't gone into consumer goods directly? Now we have been in consumer goods, and we've been a so-so investor there. And we had some very good deals. Um, you know, um, you know, uh, retail. You know, Plantagen was, which was a, a garden retail chain, and XSL, a large sports retailer. But why we deprioritize consumer goods is just because of these Amazons, Alibabas, these structural challenges in the markets, um, and 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 also the the whole e-com development. So uh, yeah, and probably there are other smarter ones in the consumer goods sector. I don't know whether it's JEP or other PE funds. Um, that's the one reason. Um, and if you then look at why we decided for the four core sectors, we think that healthcare is just, apart from that, it is purpose-driven, like uh, you know, some of our, our, our other sectors. It just, if, you know, we have we, we are one of the most sophisticated healthcare investors. Um, yeah, and we did, we really decided, okay, there's pharma, there's medtech, and within medtech, there's uh, um, uh, you know, audiology or um, um, orthopedic implants or whatever, uh, or dental implants. So we are going really down in themes and, and try to have a thematic investing approach. And the same in the technology sector, where we have um, specific software verticals or where we have uh, classifieds, which we like, uh, even uh, losing Scout, we didn't stop and did then Idealista in Spain and Casa IT in, in Italy. Um, and, and so we have very, very dedicated themes or in the industrial um, tech space, for instance, um, robotics with a very good uh, robotic um, group company or um, auto store warehouse automation logistic company or um, um, Christian Hans natural colors also in, in the industrial tech space so natural colors nothing else so coming from plants so this is what we really like so we like to invest with the trend but industrial tech we are a little bit more careful because it's a little bit more cyclical per se 
Um, so it's you know we we don't have, you know don't have a high exposure and so then then some service business model models we also like a lot anti CMAX a pest control business um, or the IVC as I said the, um, the the pets clinics it's between healthcare and and services so these are, we we like these uh, kind of um, um, themes and we always try to develop new you know new themes within the sector so it's a constant dynamic process. Marcos, terrific. Thanks so much. And to the audience, stay safe. And hopefully, uh, in some point in time, we can do this, this format all together in a room again. Stay safe and hope to see you very soon at our next deal talk. Thanks a ton. Likewise. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, search for Deal Talk wherever you listen to your podcasts. Want to know more about investing in private markets? visit moonfair.com.